Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Pete and Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, event sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and the Commodore Cocktails. Happy March, everybody. Of course, uh, St. Patrick's Day is around the corner, and we should be having some Irish whiskey here, or some Irish coffees, but also later this month, it's Taste Washington, 200-plus uh, wineries, a bunch of chefs, 50 restaurants, all taking place uh, March uh, 29th, 30th, 31st over at CenturyLink Convention Center. Uh, it's the 21st annual. It's something spectacular, and I hope you will go. Tickets are still available, uh, and I will be there for both days enjoying chatting up and trying some great food. Um, as we move into springtime, some of the places to visit, of course, Walla Walla in Washington here and Yakima and Chelan, but... Um, um, we're still a little cold, but one of the places you want to head down to is Napa. I was just in Napa Valley um, last month uh, for the CIA Sommelier Summit, and uh, the weather was beautiful. It was sunny and really warm, ironically. Um, but it's great to sort of visit uh, California and to, to taste the vintages and, and see how not only are they improving uh, the wines they produce, but also improving the recognition of California wines. And I've got um, an author and vice president of communications for the Wine Institute, Miss Nancy. Nancy Light, and we're going to chat about uh, what's going on in California. Hello, Nancy. Welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks. Great to be here. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for spending <laughs> your Saturday night with me. Uh, I understand you're on the road. Um, you are uh, the Vice President of Communications for the Wine Institute, but you've had a, a storied career, I should say, uh, in the wine business, working with Cobrand and Robert Mondavi. Um, you are also an author of several books. When did you realize you were into wine? You know, uh, I think it was early on in the... Uh let's dare I say, in the 1980s, um, <laughs> when I first started my career at Cobrand. Um, and they, they they were in this beautiful Victorian building in uh, downtown Manhattan. And I walked by and I just said, I had to, have to work in this place. And that was my education. And at the time, the company did not uh, market any California wines, but I ended up finding my way out to San Francisco. And it was just a logical step from there to start to work in the California wine industry. And I haven't looked back since. That's cool. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to remember. We have, uh, well, Cobrand, obviously it's been a f- few decades since you've been with Cobrand. When did you leave? Uh, you know, I actually started uh, in the California wine business in the early 1990s um, with Wine Institute. So it, I, I'm sort of a boomerang. I was there, and then I, I was recruited to Robert Madabi Winery. That was when the family was still uh, owned the company, and that was a really exciting time as well and got to work directly with Robert Madabi, and that's why I have a a kind of a nice history with the Vancouver Wine Festival that I know is uh, going on now and a very exciting time. And um, and then I, I ended up coming back to, to the Wine Institute, and we're an association of California wineries. We, of course, uh, represent California wine internationally and in export, and, you know, Canada is certainly our top market. Uh, but we also really are a, an advocacy organization for the thousands of small businesses that actually are California wineries and helping them navigate the many laws and regulations that uh, impact wineries, whether they're exporting you know, to countries around the world or selling to the state next door. Interesting. That's, uh, that's very helpful as 
as we have a huge Washington wine industry, of course, um, what we find is that people have a hobby, then they go, wow, their friends sell them, it's so good, they, and they transition to being commercial. But there's so much they don't know, and it's great to have an institute like the Wine Institute in California help wineries sort of grasp the international stage, or even the national stage in terms of regulations. And uh, funny how this thing, alcohol, is we're such a puritanical country that it's, it's been so difficult. It really is interesting. Yeah. And of course, Washington and California, we've had a recipro- what we call a reciprocal arrangement for many, since 1985, I think we might have been the first, where we allowed uh, each state could ship to consumers in the other. And as you may know, in 2005, when the Supreme Court finally decided this case, that was when we really were able to open up direct shipping to now the majority of states uh, you know, around the country so that people can visit Washington or California and have the wines that they've enjoyed so much on their travels shipped back to them. At home, yeah, it's it's wonderful. I mean, anytime you, if you're into wine and food, you want to go to some place and bring some home. So, or at least to have it when you get back home, so you can share it with your friends and try to uh, recapture that special moment uh, when you're having Provence rosé <laughs> with steak tartare, which sometimes doesn't necessarily happen. Um, a little uh, side note is that uh, Washington and California are are deeply tied in the wine business because uh, Rainier Brewery was looking to diversify, and in 1966, a young man named Robert Mondavi was looking for money. And so the Rainier Brewery gave him $20,000 to start a winery. And so uh, that's our connection. I know the Mandavi family still comes up to visit uh, the Betty Krieger um, from D. Wayne Krieger, his days as the CEO of Rainier Brewery. But um, so we have a little history. At, uh, I always like share that because it's kind of like beer started wine in some ways, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You, you know your history. I'll have to give you that. That's right. I do. You've written two books. Let's talk about those books. Um, uh, they're available now. Sure. I understand you've got one book called Down to Earth, A Seasonal Tour of California Sustainable Wine Growing. When you think about sustainable, there's lots of uh, parts of a winery that we can, are concerned about. Uh, a, for just the fact that we're fermenting and creating CO2 is one of those things. But when you think sustainable, tell me what that philosophy is for California. So really, it's three-pronged. So it's everything that we do in the vineyards and the winery and the community. Um, and another element really is that we forget to talk about is the economic sustainability. Obviously, you know, wineries and vineyards um, do provide a lot of jobs and a lot of uh, income to their communities and just in general to our, our nation um, and states. But um, so that's a, so economic sustainability to keep that business going, to be able to employ people is another element. But it's really every consideration that goes into managing that business, um, as you said, certainly to the making of the wine, but the, but the growing of the grapes, uh, to packaging, to um, being, you know, members of the community. As you know, uh, wineries in general are very charitable, uh, certainly at home, but even beyond that in terms of supporting the arts and um, all kinds of good community causes. So that's, that's really uh, – that's a general overview. Um, specifically, um, the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance, which is an organization that our wine institute and our grow counterpart, the California Associ- uh, Association of Wine Grape Growers, started in 2003, um, is has a very comprehensive workbook of our 200 practices in each of these areas uh, with the idea that you can um, just basically measure everything you're doing against what is considered the best practice in that area. And we now have a certification program for that. And we have the majority of California wineries and a pretty significant uh, portion of our growers are now third-party certified to that program, and that continues to grow. 
I love it, and it's important that uh, to feel good about the products we're making. It gives us more confidence, and and of course, it's, it's more of the story to share. Uh, when we think about sustainability, it's really one of the, the markers that uh, man is or man and woman is finally uh, recognized as being important to our livelihoods or just <laughs> our regular life. Um, you wrote another book called The Wine Country Table with recipes to celebrate California's sustainable table. I imagine you work with some of the agricultural groups down there. We did. And let me just clarify something. I'm not actually the author. I was a co-conceiver and editor. So ah, um, our okay. wonderful author is Janet Fletcher, and she's the author of both books. Um, and I just said that the um, Down to Earth was really, that was really focusing on sustainable. We profiled, uh, I think, a dozen different wineries and really had them talk about their sustainable work, you know, in their wineries and their in their vineyards, what it meant to them personally. Um, Wine Country Table, which actually comes out, it's being published by Rizzoli. It comes out at the end of March, so official release date is March 26th. So it's available for, for pre-sale now on Amazon and elsewhere, but um, but you can't pick it up until later in March. And that's really bringing together, you know, everything, you know, food and wine grow well together, and we enjoy them together at the table. So the idea was really to show the leadership of California, and it's a culinary tour throughout the state, highlighting 15 wineries um, and uh, about 22 uh, specialty crops, meaning, you know, from everything from olive oil to dried figs to cherries. Uh, you know, California grows over 400 different specialty crops, and, uh, and to really showcase those and talk about uh, how they're grown with, uh, you know, the most earth-friendly and community-friendly practices, uh, and then have 50 recipes that you can can make of those things. So it's a really, really exciting project, and we did work with a number of the, the uh, grower associations that represent those those uh, foods and crops to put this together. I love it. There's something really sublime about the uh, wine country picnic or the wine country meal. Um, there's just really nothing to, uh, to to compete against that sort of experience. Is it? Is it's it's. it's Real, it's uh, it's authentic, it's slow, it's uh, delicious usually, and it's um, balmy, mm-hmm. I imagine, especially down in Napa. When we think of California wines, obviously a lot of people go think of Napa and good for them, but how many wine regions are in California? So it depends on how you define a wine region. We have, I think it will be going on because I heard of another one introduced. So it, there are 139 currently American viticultural areas, so those would be unique you know, grape growing areas right. that would, uh, you know, be distinguished in some way. And of course, I know you know that. Um, this is dozens of regions, and again, it depends on how you define them. Um, you know, basically within uh, an hour's drive of any of our major cities and smaller cities, you're going to find uh, wine grapes. I mean, we're, there are grapes grown in 49 of 53 counties in California. Wow. Um, but I think your point is that that's really one of the exciting developments. Um, you know, Napa and Sonoma continue to get. You know, stronger and better and better wines from those uh, regions, and uh, there'll be, a, you know, I, I would imagine most of your um, listeners are familiar with those. Um, but it's the story of some of the other regions coming on board. Regions like Lodi, uh, Paso Robles, which has become such a major, um, always long-time grape-growing region, but people didn't, you know, there weren't as many wineries there. If you even go back, you know, certainly 10, 20 years ago, sure. uh, Livermore. Another great uh, wine-growing region, smaller, but, you know, within an hour's drive of San Francisco. So I think that's really Santa Barbara. I'm actually, that's uh, where I'm uh, calling you from right now. All right. <laughs> Terrific wines down there. So, 
Yeah. It's exciting to you think. Know, dozens of regions. Yeah, and when I think about Pastor Robles, uh, there was a connection here with Justin Winery uh, from Seattle. Uh, of course, you've got some master sommeliers down there in San Francisco and, and Paso. Um, there are these great festivals. I think I've had the Mendocino Wine Song on there. I think there's Santa, something to the World of Pinot is coming up, right? Is that what you're heading down for? Are you heading down for the World of Pinot in Santa Barbara, or was it Monterey? I forget. You know, I'm actually doing a, a tour of California missions. <laughs> really? Uh yeah, which is something. So, which, you know, the original missions were the founding of the wine growing history for California. It was the Spanish missions. Pais Because great, they right. produced sacramental wines. Yeah. And there's 21 throughout the state. And so we actually started with the first one in San Diego and are driving up uh, to the last one in, in the town of Sonoma. Oh, that's pretty neat. So, um, are you going to have a little sample of the sacramental wine and see how it differs? You know, I think I'll skip it. You know, I don't... <laughs> there's a reason we've gone on. Gone on to the classic varieties, I think. Too funny, you know. From my, the mission grape. Uh, sure. Um, I was always questioned. You know, I grew up with uh, a great uh, uh, religion in my my family, and I was always wondering why. You know, most sacramental wine is white. Like, hey, come on now. I understood now because they wear a lot of white, so nobody wants to be doing all that laundry with red, ah, red wine point. stains. That's right. That's right. And I should mention to you, Christopher, in terms of events that are happening, if people are coming down to California, we have a terrific website, discovercaliforniawines.com. Um, cool. And it has, we have an events calendar on there, so it's always got the listing of the latest activities. And kind of coming up a little beyond this show in April, we have a focus. It's called Down to Earth Month, and it's where we really are focusing on highlighting our sustainability of our industry, but through fun activities that people can do. So it can be everything from eco-tours to, uh, you know, sustainable food and wine tastings to, um, you know, giving people a special discount if they ride their bicycle to a winery. So there's all kinds of fun things that will be um, on that website. Uh, But, again, it's really focused on, you know, California's leadership in sustainability and, 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 you know, leadership of our wine industry. Do you have the bike-sharing program down there? Is some of those uh, wine regions have? Oh, perfect. That's good. Yeah, I know about wineries because they're mostly in rural areas, but we we certainly have them – uh, in uh, in our downtown San Francisco and L.A., Santa Barbara. Well, you must be riding a bike with a baguette under your arm, I think, to really sort of take in that wine country lifestyle. Uh, well, this is really cool. One more time for that website, discovercaliforniawines.com. You got it. That's it. Fantastic. Well, Nancy Light, I appreciate you taking time tonight to share with you, share with us the story of the Wine Institute and all the great work you're doing to promote uh, America and, of course, California wines. Thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks. Same to you. All right. That's Nancy Light, the Vice President of Communications for the Wine Institute. And she's on the road checking out all the cool Spanish missions that had marked uh, um, the uh, the evolution of wine in California. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, uh, I got more coming up right here on Happy Hour Radio. Regular guys separated by 20 years and a full head of hair. Mark Lee and Van Camp. Weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570. KVI. KVI. Want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan.
All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for round two. And it's uh, March. We think of March, we think of the color green, of course, for St. Patrick's Day. And uh, we hope spring is around the corner. It's been quite a uh, quite a February with uh, all that snow and the cold temps. But um, I do see things breaking above ground and uh, looking green and flowers uh, and just hints, whiffs of uh, my Daphne in the garden is wonderful. When I think about uh, springtime, of course, we think about the fresh vegetables and, of course, uh, bird eggs and perhaps love. Um, I have my next guest uh, has a great love for music and also um, for food and vegetables. Uh, her name is Isan Spevek, and she is, uh, well, she's available today because she's got a really cool story. Um, Isan, hey, welcome to Happy Hour. Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much. My pleasure. So um, quite the tease. I like the fact that, A, I was a musician and I like to cook, um, but you are also a classically trained musician and a cook. Tell us about uh, uh, your instrument of choice. So uh, I'm a composer and a conductor, um, and I play string instruments. I play violin, viola, and cello. And, you know, I don't think it's coincidental that you and I both love food and music. I I think that so many people who love food are also music lovers and the other way around. It kind of goes together, right? Probably stimulates that area in our brain, (laughs) I think, right? Yeah, it's the good stuff in life. Yes, for sure. Um, you know, I I was a DJ early on in my career. I think I was 15 when I started spinning records and tapes for a, uh, for a wedding anniversary. I remember it uh, distinctly, my first time. Um, but I carried that through and playing uh, in rock and roll bands and dance bands and things. But I've, I've never certainly composed music. I wrote a lot of lyrics as a kid. But um, tell me, when you think about composing m- music, uh, do you start with a... A riff? Do you start with a chorus? How does that work for you typically? You know, every time is different. Um, if I can make the analogy, because, you, you know, your readers all, all know how to cook pretty much, right? So there's the analogy there of like, you know, if you're making a salad, you probably have, if you're improvising, most people when they make a salad are not really following a recipe. They're, they're making it up. They're composing a salad. But if they're composing a, a main dish or a cookie or... If any of these things, it's a very different thought process and, and way of doing it. And likewise for me, composing music, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll start with a brief. So there'll be, you know, if there's a movie that needs a piece for a particular mood, a particular scene, they probably will send me um, a bit of video with no sound on it that's just so you can see what the, the characters are doing. Uh. And, you know, and there'll be notes from the director saying, hey, this is a romantic scene or this is a car chase or, you know, whatever it is. So, Sometimes there's a lot of structure before you even start. Sometimes it's just nothing there at all. And maybe like you, it comes from a lyric. Maybe it's a personal experience that I want to process. And so it might come from a lyric or might come from me kind of sitting around with a guitar and just kind of thinking about something. Or or it might be, you know, depending where I am, it could be using a piano or it could be just in my head. Sometimes, you know, I've woken up a number of times with a dream where I can hear a full symphony orchestra. And I remember a few times where it was like the middle of the night and I seriously had to get up because I knew it was good. And it was kind of annoying. It was like, oh, God, could it please be quiet? And it was like, no, it's not really quiet. <laughs> and I will have forgotten it by the morning, so I'd better just get up and like write this thing down. Um, so, you know, it comes in lots of different ways. That's interesting. And it's almost like you have a... When you're hungry, right? Typically, we're hungry in the morning. If it's early morning, you want a protein shake. Middle morning, you might want a bowl of cereal and some fruit. Later on, you might want 
French toast and bacon and the works. But I wonder, um, when you think of food that way, is there sort of a, a soundtrack to food, in your opinion? I mean, do you think about lemon yes. meringue and go, I, I hear uh, piccolos going on or something? 100%. And actually, um, so I, I developed uh, a whole thing when I was living in New York for three years from uh, like 2014 to 2017, 18. And I, I had a, a, a thing that I was doing there called Integrity, uh, which is with a Y at both ends, you can at integrity.com. And um, basically, we um, combined music and food really closely using a whole bunch of published scientific papers that are coming out of the cognitive psychology field. There's an area of study that shows how your five primary senses all interrelate and integrate together. So, for example, if you're um, listening to high-pitched strings and um, eating something sweet and looking at the color red, the sweet thing tastes sweeter than if you're listening to low-pitched music and um, the color blue. Wow. It's like there's something, and they've done tons of tests cross-culturally. This works around the world, so it's not necessarily cultural association because different cultures have different associations with different colors and different sounds. But this is more of a a human way that the brain works. Um, So, yeah, there, there is absolutely a correlation directly between music and food. I like it, and I believe that popcorn tastes better in the dark. <laughs> I, I could go with that. I don't know if there's a scientific study on that, but absolutely tastes better with a movie. Always. One might think, and along with uh, licorice, red red rope or red licorice vines and things like that. Um, well, this is really interesting. When I think about conducting an, uh, a symphony or, or conducting an orchestra, there are how many different regions are there in a typical orchestra? I mean, because I see that you've got two hands, you've got the baton, and you must be visually connecting with with each of those particular the, the the horn section and the first strings and the third strings how many different areas are there to keep an eye on when you're conducting an orchestra i haven't counted it um i guess that you just named them you've got like four different main strings and you've got your, your basses at the back and you've got your percussion section but that can separate out depending on i mean for, for modern music there's often like a whole array like, you know, from timpani through to tune percussion, like, you know, kind of vibraphones and stuff. And then you've got, like, your, your rattly, shaky things. It, it can often, you know, be more than one kind of area in that. And then you've got your, your woodwinds. But then, again, like, it, it's divided into, you know, reeds and non-reeds. You might have a piano. You might have a harp. There's your brass. So it, it depends. I, I guess there is, there isn't typical. And the kind of music that I'm doing, because I don't, conduct classical music. I, I don't do anything from, from the, the classical genre. Uh, it's, right. it's all for rock and pop generally and you know some film and TV stuff. So um, it's usually stuff where I've kind of created the score and so usually it's really focused on strings and I do like to have a harp wherever possible. <laughs> I love the harp. That's cool. Um, I know that we've done some studies of Smollier. They talk about uh, having a control group and a group when you're tasting wine and having lots of noise. Um, your brain isn't necessarily focusing on the particular wine or the flavor because you have such a cacophony of noise, like in a large, in a busy restaurant. But when you're in a, in a smaller group or a quiet place and you taste this wine and with the food together, it becomes, even in that silence, it becomes the focus of all your senses. Um, so though it may not be heightened it to, to some degree it certainly is not diminished at all 
there's so much research coming out of the cross-modal cognitive psychology area that I was just mentioning. There's a, a guy you would need to look up um, called Professor Charles Spence. He's based at the Cross-Modal Research Institute at Oxford University, which is the leading spot for, for this area of, of psychology. And um, he's putting out so many papers around wine specifically and how, um, you know, all of the primary senses combine to affect how wine tastes. Um, there's so much you can do to manipulate the other senses that will make you appreciate that wine more. And the wine companies, the larger, you know, industry people that are in it, are buying his papers and doing what they can to action, you know, what his describing because this, this stuff works. This is not, you know, guessing, it's science. Um, so stuff like they've done kind of studies where if you cover the um, beaker that the, the wine's in, so you can't see it rather than using a glass right. thing where you can see if it's a red or a white, if you just like, cover it up and give them a straw. Um, but if the covered thing is the colour of red or the colour of white, hugely impacts if people think that's a red wine or a white wine in there, they guess wrong a ton. If it's a red-coloured cup, they're going to guess it's red even when it's white, like most of the time. And this includes sommeliers, ah. by the way, students so just like Joe Public. <laughs> You're right. I know that um, it, all it takes is just a, a millisecond to see a bit of color, and my mind is already wondering the shape of the bottle with the capsule color. Um, I know what wine that is, and I'm already going down that rabbit hole, which is typically the wrong direction uh, because we want to stay up, up aboard uh, uh, with, uh, well, with real thought and using trusting your senses. Speaking with Isan Spavek, who is, um, well, you are a musician, or, uh, a conductor, and an author, and you came out with a brand new book that just was released uh, earlier this year. Uh, tell me the name of the book. It's called Vegetable Cakes, the most fun way to fire the day. And I love it. And when that came across my desk, I always like to bring really fun things to Happy Hour Radio. And it's about food and wine and spirits and things. And this particular one caught my mind. I saw the cover of the book. Um, and to see this beautiful green cake is absolutely amazing. Um, but before we go there, you were, we're going to take a little break here in a second. But quickly, when, would you, when did you first start gardening? Um. I guess I've, you know, I've played around in the garden um, kind of my whole life. We, 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 I lived in the suburbs of London, and so we had like a, a little yard back there, and, and I used to, I had a rhubarb patch and planted pansies and stuff as a kid. But in terms of professional gardening, it really came to me. Um, I've been so fortunate throughout my life, but basically um, I got an email super randomly one night around a decade ago um, from a lady saying, Hey, we want to start an edible garden. Awesome. And I've got your cookbook here. I got to hold that thought, son. Hey, folks, we'll be right back with more on Happy Hour Radio. He's live. He's local. He's all Northwest. Lars Larson, weekdays noon to 3, Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for round three and hope you got uh, some vegetables on your mind. I have the pleasure of speaking with a very, very interesting person, Isan Spavek, who is an author, a, an orchestra composer, a conductor, and um, a world-class musician. Uh, 
Isan, we were just chatting about your, uh, well, your green thumb, and you were starting in, in England, and you had your little patch, but 10 years ago or so, uh, you got serious about gardening. Yeah, so basically, I'd, I'd just come back from touring with the Smashing Pumpkins, and it was the like the night after that, and I'm so exhausted. Like doing a music tour like that is like super exhausting. Really wonderful, but you are tired after it. So I was sat there at home in Los Angeles, and uh, I got an email randomly from some stranger who found me on the internet and said that she had a copy of one of my cookbooks. Um, there's like 13 cookbooks out there um, that I've written and had published, and wow. um, so she had one and messaged me and said, hey, I, I, we, we want to make an edible garden um, at our home here in Beverly Hills and uh, I've got your cookbook here. I wanted if you'd come around and take a look. And I, I was like, that's really sweet. That's super random. It's a cookbook. <laughs> it's not a gardening book. Like, I don't know if I know that much about gardening. Um, but then I was like, you know what? I, I don't have much going on. Gardening sounds nice. Just back from tour, really tired, up for an adventure still. So I was like, you know, I'll go around and see the lady. You never know. And so I showed up. The lady turns out to be, you know, one of the wealthiest families in America. They had three enormous estates all in the Los Angeles area, one in Beverly Hills, one in Topanga, one in Bel Air. And she has a, a very eccentric way of um, hiring people. And basically, she saw my passion around um, vegetables and around organic food. She'd read the book. She understood that I really care about these things. And I think that was her selection process. She was like, the rest you can learn. Like, there are books on gardening. You can figure it out. But, you know, what she wanted was somebody that was real in their, in their passion for it. And um, so I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to do it. And it was just a wonderful discovery for me. It was the perfect antidote to being on tour, you know, like the most, nature-filled, beautiful spots, and I worked very hard and really enjoyed it and really learned quite quickly because, you know, I had the, the background information down and everybody can garden if they want to, seriously. We're, we're kind of created to do that. Um, and so, yeah, no, I did that, and then she recommended me to her friends, and suddenly this thing grew, and so then I was, you know, working with the great and good of those three neighborhoods in L.A., which does mean... You know, a lot of famous people and non-famous people, and you know, I built a team so I could do it all. You know, obviously these are, these are huge gigs. Uh, it's like minimum two acres, which was basically what wow. I, I did. So, yeah, like many farms in LA for for mostly uh, residential, um, but also for there's a, a beautiful uh, retreat called the Ranch, and um, so I was also the head gardener there. That sounds fabulous. How lucky. And, of course, there's lots of sunshine down in L.A. Um, and how many different vegetables would you plant for the likes of Barbara Streisand, William Shatner, and Patrick Dempsey? Uh, how many uh, did they have a rotating crop? Were they, you found things that uh, ripened early and then were seasonal late? Yeah, everything in the garden is seasonal. Everything I'm saying. There's, there's nothing that just happens all the time, even in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, the seasons aren't as marked here as in many other places in, in the country, including Seattle, but um, there, there are still seasons. I mean, in the winter, um, the, the leafy greens, like, the, the you know, the kale grows better than in the summer. It's going to get some bugs because it's too hot. Um, in the summer, the fruit trees are going to be making fruit. In the winter, they're not, unless they're citrus, in which case January is the time for them. 
so you know, there's there's in terms of numbers of varieties, like I, I don't I don't have that data. These are these are huge places, and I wasn't really doing it by counting, but like a lot people wanted variety. Yeah. Um, and for organic gardening, it's good to have variety too. That's one of the ways that we keep the bugs away is by not having just one enormous right. monocrop. That's right. like exactly. a way to go wrong. But yeah, you, you keep it diverse and. Um, Makes sense. So fun. Well, I know that um, one of the things that we talk about is, and when we talk about wine, of course, is the ripeness level. And we think about fruit as being sweet, but fruit typically has acidity. So sometimes it's you don't know how much sugar is in a lemon because you got so much acid. Um, And likewise, an onion doesn't have any acid, but it's sure got a lot of sugar. So this idea of making vegetable cakes, uh, the the most fun way, the five a day, the most fun way. (laughs) I got to get that down. When would you have first had, what was your first vegetable cake that you made? I guess probably like everybody, probably it was a carrot cake. Um, Uh, Sure. In terms of this book, that's not kind of um, where I started. Where, Where I started was thinking about, all of the cakes that we just take for granted that we totally know, don't even think twice about, like carrot cake, like pumpkin pie, like zucchini bread. You know, nobody thinks this is like crazy. This is just, you know, cakes. And um, think, then I realized I was like, you know, why, why just them? Why not the other vegetables? Uh, and so I made a list of vegetables when I was thinking about writing a book. Um, so, you know, the the idea kind of came from thinking about what to write about. And then I, I went through the list of vegetables and started really thinking about each one and how they might pair with different flavors or how they would caramelize. Like you're saying with onions, they, they're going to caramelize beautifully and become sweeter than a raw strawberry could ever be. Uh, so, yeah, just thinking about the flavors and, and also the textures. So something like cauliflower, thinking about how when you, you know, bake it, like if you were making cauliflower cheese, it goes like, super moist, dense texture and how that could be really beautifully utilized. So, you know, in the book, I made a cauliflower chocolate cake, not because of the flavor of cauliflower particularly, but because chocolate cake, you want to be moist and dense. So it does that. That's the purpose it serves in that cake. It's very cool. The book is called Vegetable Cakes, The Most Fun Way to Five a Day. And what caught my eye was the beautiful photography and to actually see how incorporated vegetables are into the final product, whether it be a cake or a bread or a pie. Um, One of the cakes or one of the dishes that really caught my eye was this idea was first of all that chocolate with the cauliflower you had basically the crown of the cauliflower as part of the the muffin or or the the bread in there and that was really neat to see because i know that cauliflower can be very um flour like if you will like and like pizza dough i mean it can be soft and it can be it can be crisp at the same time so it has a lot of variance of texture but you did something with squash squash ribbons on the top which looked very pretty but i was very curious what's that cake called that's the pumpkin ginger cheesecake. All right. Well, it makes makes sense that this uh, touring with Smashing Pumpkins, you're going to have some pumpkin recipes. And are, are most of these cakes? Um, do they? Do you have to add sugar to them? So the book before vegetable cakes that I wrote is the No Sugar Baking and Desserts book. And so for that book, I was looking at how to cook without refined sugar, but still make something that's really deliciously sweet. And, you know, really a mainstream palette, a donut guy is still going to love it. And it's completely easy to do. I mean, you just have to, you know, use um, other ingredients and other techniques. So after doing that book, this one came next. And so actually a lot of the recipes 
they don't have refined sugar in them, but they still are very sweet. Um, because I just think sugar, honestly, is, is a slightly lazy ingredient in that it doesn't have a great flavor. Everyone thinks they like the taste of sugar when they think about it. But actually, if you give someone a teaspoon of sugar, or you give them a teaspoon of honey or a teaspoon of maple syrup, like right there, it illustrates that sugar, is, it has a sweetness you like, but the flavor you don't really like as much as honey or as maple syrup. I guess it's like and, salt, right? And, Kind of like Sorry? salt. It's kind of like salt. It's an accent that helps uh, um, accent the flavor, like vanilla. Vanilla doesn't taste anything until you put sugar in it, and then it's like, wow, this is really good. <laughs> I get well, it. Yeah, but sugar itself, it, the taste of it, it, the sweetness we all love. You know, we, we love sweet, but we think we like sugar, but actually, as I said, if, if you try the flavor of just a teaspoon of sugar or flavor of just a teaspoon of maple, maple syrup... The actual flavor, most people prefer the not sugar one. It's the sweetness they want. So the sweetness you can get from a ton of different sources that also have a better flavor profile. The thing with sugar is it's kind of cheap. That's really why people started using it so so much. Um, But, you know, if, if, if you're making a cake, then... You know, to spend a little more, I mean, not to go crazy, but like just have, you know, spend a, a little bit more on, on a special thing like a cake and, um, and then, you know, not cut corners there and, and just have something that's that more delicious. I love it. Uh, speaking with Isan Spivak, who is the author of Vegetable Cakes. Uh, this is, uh, do you have a website? Because you said you, you've actually written several cookbooks. Uh, is there a website we can find you on? Yes, it's tastecolors.com. Ah, that's Colors a good one. Is spent without a, without a use, American way, tastecolors.com. Excellent. Uh, vegetable cakes, the most fun way to five a day. Uh, Isan, I imagine the Smashing Pumpkins might want you cooking on tour next year, huh? Totally <laughs> not. I, 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 a, I'm not, not touring with them because they, they're currently doing a guitar band thing. And, and B, no, I don't mix it up. Oh, so fun. Music, it's not food. <laughs> they oh. have their own chef. Congratulations on this book. I appreciate your time and best of luck. I look forward to chatting again on Happy Hour Radio. Putting America first and holding the powerful accountable. Sean Hannity, weekdays 6 to 9 p.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, one of the best things about uh, being in the industry of food and beverage and hospitality is the chance to recognize the outstanding folks in our biz, and uh, the restaurant business is demanding. You're on your feet, you're managing people, you're managing produce and products, you want to be sure that your menus look good, and you've got to pay rent and overhead and B&O taxes. So being in this profession is really demanding. Of course, you always have to be nice and smile and be friendly and take care of the guests. And, you know, that's... um, that takes a bit of acting, and I can tell you this: that uh, when you're a chef, you're not an actor. You're if you're a bartender, you're an actor, but you still have to uh, manage your craft. And what's great about managing your craft to the highest degree is being recognized by um, 
institution called the James Beard Award Foundation. James Beard was this great food critic. Uh, he uh, wined and dined and really helped shape, uh, helped communicate what great food, great experiences, great hospitality was to um, uh, America. And, uh, of course, he's gone now, but we have the James Beard Award Foundation, and we have the James Beard Dinners, and, of course, the James Beard Awards. And uh, Eduardo Jordan of June Baby um, won Best New Chef and Best New Restaurant, and he, you know, hit it. He's just a nice guy. And most of the people... I should say all the people, except the ones I don't know, um, are really cool. And there is a mentor position. You, you don't. You might be famous when you're young, but by the time you're old, you recognize that you need to share your craft, share your expertise, share your knowledge, share your vision, and share your passion for what takes place within the confines of uh, you know six burners and a garmanger and a cooler, and of course managing people. Um, we want to make people happy. That's just a basis of human nature. And I'm super excited to uh, read to you some of the best new restaurants, bakers, bar programs, wine service, outstanding service, and restaurant tours that have just been nominated for James Beard. First of all, uh, there's no doubt that the outstanding restaurant tour, one of them, restaurant tour, Ethan Stoll. Ethan Stoll, uh, his restaurants, the Ballard Pizza Company, Bramling Cross, Cortina, and uh, How to Cook a Wolf. Um, uh, Tav, uh, was it Tavolata? I think he's got two. Uh, Ethan Stoll has been nominated for Outstanding Restaurateur. And go figure, Outstanding Service. Yes, Canlis. Canlis, uh, most gracious, professional, um, loving hospitality service you can find. It is the uh, epitome of service no matter where you are. They are Relay and Chateau and a five-star destination. Uh, let's talk about Best New Restaurant. There's two um, because we uh, we love our friends to the south. Uh, in Portland, Oregon, Canard. Canard uh, means duck in uh, French, and I bet they probably serve duck. And also, locally, Sawyer. Sawyer Restaurant is uh, nominated for Best New Restaurant. The Outstanding Baker. Uh, we've got a few over here. Uh, Kit Schumann and uh, Jesse Schumann of Seawolf Bakers and Kim Boyce of Bake Shop Portland. The Outstanding Chef, uh, Shiro Kashiba. Go figure. Hey, Shiro, congratulations on that. And, of course, Gabriel Rucker of Le Pigeon down in Portland. Um, outstanding pastry chef. Uh, our own Cafe Juanita Junko Mine. And the outstanding restaurant uh, is Cafe Juanita. Wow. Rising star. Here you go. Shota Nakajima from Adana in Seattle. Uh, you got to check that place out. He's a masterful young man and doing well. And then we have Jay Blackington. Uh, on Orcas Island at Idler Hogston's Wood Oven. Wow, go figure. Orcas Island, my pal Cole Sisson has got the Orcas uh, Ordobe Wine Company. He's doing great up there. That place is becoming a destination into itself. Outstanding wine spirits and beer producer. Hey, Dave Green, Skagit Valley Malting. You pr provide most of the grains for some of our craft distilleries around the Pacific Northwest. Thank you very much. And Mike Sauer. Uh, the original planter of Syrah in, at uh, Red Willow Vineyard. Mike Sauer, Red Willow Vineyard, is uh, nominated for Outstanding Wine Spirits or Beer Producer. The Outstanding Wine Program, where I went for a, uh, a birthday dinner for my sweetie, is at Lorsan in Seattle. That's over by Seattle U down uh, off 12th Street, I believe. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, what a treat. And Outstanding Bar Program, go figure. It's no anchor. Those guys rock. Uh, no question, no doubt, no brainer. It's no anchor and expatriate in Portland, Oregon. Um, in the, is that it? Is that what we got here? 
looks like I got them all. Cafe Juanita, Shiro Kashiba, Shota, Larsan, Canlis, Ethan Stoll, Kennard Sawyer, and more. Uh, James Beard Award is really um, a recognition of people's passion, and we always have to appreciate that. Uh, when you go into a restaurant, be sure that you're pleased. And then when you're pleased, tip big. I mean, take care of the folks that take care of you because hospitality is a dying art and we want people to remain in that position because, gosh darn it, I don't want to do the dishes. I want someone to treat me to the best flavors, best experience, best wine, best cocktail, and just the best moment that I can experience this one moment in life. Hope you enjoyed these few moments we had. and I want to thank uh, Nancy Light with the Wine Institute and, of course, uh, all of my guests that joined me on Happy Hour Radio. If you miss a show, it's happyhourradio.net. And uh, remember, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers! <laughs>